Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online. You'll experience the all-new Cerebral way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way, so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. Stripping down science. The Naked Scientists. Hello, welcome to this week's Naked Scientists with me, Chris Smith, and also with Helen Scales. Hi, Helen. Hi, Chris. Now, this week, find out how scientists have shown eventually that running a temperature really does help to fight off infections. We'll also be hearing how you can mend a broken heart. Now, you don't do that with flowers or chocolates. Instead, it's a chemical that you can use to make the blood form new blood vessels. And on the subject of your heart, we'll also be hearing how red wine can boost athletic performance, and not just if you're in the GB Olympic team, that is, Um, and Plus, uh, also stem cells are now possibly in the running to cure muscular dystrophy. Find out how that's working later on. This week, we're also diving into the deep freeze with a look at the science of Antarctica. Paul Abrahamson will be taking us on a journey beneath the ice aboard Autosub. Jane Francis will be winding back the clock 50 million years to a time when Antarctica was warm, covered in trees and home to six-foot-tall penguins. And Kate Hendry will be talking to us about what it's like for researchers who live and work in Antarctica. And uh, also to warm you up after that cold dip uh, in kitchen science, we're going to be showing you the science behind the humble hand warmer. How's it work and how do you make one? And if you're in the mood to make or to uh, win something, I'm going to give away some signed copies of my new book, which is called Naked Science. It's a collection of fun and funky science stories. And if you want to win one of them, all you have to do for a chance to do that is to have a go at this week's teaser question. Very much in the Antarctic theme of the show, we want to know what year was the hole in the ozone layer over Antarctica first detected. The Naked Scientist podcast. Powered by UK Fast, the UK's best hosting provider. On the web at ukfast.net. I don't think I'm alone in being a bit snuffly and a bit stuffed up and bunged up and cold infested lately. Are you uh, afflicted, Helen? I'm doing pretty well, but I wouldn't like to say so, so touch wood. But have you heard this this saying, you know, that, you know, feed a cold, starve a fever, and then people say that having a fever is good for you. Some people say it's bad and they reach for the paracetamol to bring your temperature down. Which do you choose to do? I don't know. I tend to just kind of get on with life, really. Or is that just because I'm a woman? I'd hate to bring up any male-female bias there. But <laughs> well, I, tend I to suffer get on from with man things. flu professionally. But scientists have actually discovered that running a fever really does benefit your immune system and helps you to fight off bugs. Because for a long time, people have speculated that having a high temperature, perhaps it stops bacteria growing so well. We know that some viruses don't grow very well at a higher temperature. So by your body running a higher temperature, it slows down their growth. And flu is an example of that. But now there's actually a, another physiological, a cellular reason why running a temperature temperature could be a good thing. And Sharon Evans and her colleagues um, have published a paper in the journal Nature Immunology and they're based at Roswell Park Cancer Institute in New York. And what they did was to test mice and they kept some mice at room temperature and they kept, in other words, body temperature for those mice and they kept some some other mice at a slightly higher 
room temperature, about 39 degrees. So this made the mice run a sort of temperature. And they compared how many white blood cells that fight off infections, those are cells called lymphocytes, move out of the bloodstream and into lymph nodes, in other words, the glands that come up when you get an infection. And what they found was that when these mice were challenged with some kind of infection or something, when they were running this higher temperature, far more of these white blood cells were able to get out of the bloodstream and into the lymph nodes, where the body educates the white blood cells about what to attack than when they just did it with a cooler temperature. So it does actually have a major benefit to be a bit warmer when you're ill. So we shouldn't try and sort of reduce our body temperatures perhaps and just stick, a, stick with those hot temperatures? Well, maybe think about it. If you can bear it before reaching for the paracetamol, yeah. it might be okay, worth doing so. Cool. Here on The Naked Scientist, we are often talking about other scientists are uncovering more ways in which enjoying an occasional glass of red wine might be good for us. And in particular, a compound found in grape skins and in red wine called resveratrol. It's already been shown to increase the lifespan of mice by around 15%, and clinical trials are currently underway involving people with diabetes. Now, if we, we have news this week from scientists who have discovered yet another possible health-giving benefit of the red stuff, and it could boost our athletic performance and even help to keep us thin. That's according to a new study led by scientists from the Institute of Genetics and Molecular and Cell Biology in Ilkirch in France, who have shown that high doses of resveratrol given to mice, yep, we're talking about mice again, improves their muscle endurance and stops them from from getting overweight. Now what the researchers did was they they fed a group of mice on a very high fat diet and then they gave half of them a really high dose of resveratrol equivalent to around 100 glasses of wine for, for a human being every day. Every day, yes. And it's, they showed this didn't have any, any negative side effects actually so having that much resveratrol might be alright but it's a lot of wine to drink. But anyway, after about three weeks the mice that were taking this red wine-like supplement only weighed about 20% more than, the, than mice on normal diets because remember we're feeding these lots of fat and they should be getting overweight. And the ones that were just having the high fat diet and weren't taking any supplements weighed 60% more than normal mice. And we, they tested the fitness of these mice, which is a sort of image I have in my mind that I find quite appealing. Mice on treadmills. Mouse Olympics or something. Yeah, wonderful. Uh, and it turned out that the, one, the mice that were taking the resveratrol supplements could run twice as far as normal mice, even if you take the difference in their weight into account. Um, so the reason, the, the, the reason behind this that might be explaining these differences could be the effect of of this um, chemical on uh, those tiny energy-producing units inside every living cell called mitochondria. And essentially what the mitochondria do is they burn the food we eat and convert it into energy that we can use to move and grow. Mm. And it's thought that perhaps this resveratrol might trigger the process which gives each cell more mitochondria so that essentially you're kind of packing more energy production ability into each cell. And also the ability to burn off calories because mitochondria are, of course, the powerhouses which consume calories. And the more of them you have, therefore, potentially the more energy you can burn off and therefore the slimmer you are. That's absolutely right, yes. So um, unfortunately, like I've already mentioned, you have to eat an awful lot of, drink an awful lot of wine to have this effect, but it's possible that in the future we might be seeing athletes perhaps taking supplements of this resveratrol and maybe one day red wine could be a banned substance at the Olympic Games. I hope not. Oh, that could be, be quite bad if you're in the <laughs> Olympic drinking squad, couldn't it? But uh, that sort of comes on the back of another discovery which was published in the journal Nature recently by David Sinclair from Harvard University in the States. And what they found was that mice given this resveratrol, the component that's in red wine, lived 20% longer than mice that weren't given it. So that's really encouraging. And actually they've got a gene that they think it uses uh, or it targets in order to boost lifespan. And it again seems to be through this mitochondria, these cellular powerhouses. And, and they think perhaps it's to do with these mitochondria producing a byproduct of their metabolism called free radicals that damage cells. And so if you can minimise the production of those agents, and, and resveratrol may be able to do that, perhaps then you can boost lifespan.
Now, talking about actually boosting lifespan and, and making people better, there's actually been an amazing discovery this week, and I got talking to Giulio Cossu, who's actually from the San Rafael Scientific Institute in Milan, and I interviewed him. I think it's the first time I've ever interviewed anyone, Helen, from their hospital bed, and it's a good job they're a bit more relaxed in, in, in Italy about the use of mobile phones in hospital because this guy wasn't there but for any other, other reason than he'd been a victim of Italian driving and had a motorcycle accident and broken his leg. Uh, so he's waiting for some surgery to fix himself up, but he's made an amazing discovery, which is that there's a certain kind of disease that affects uh, retriever dogs and uh, it's very, very similar to the human disease muscular dystrophy, which is an inherited condition. It's carried on the X chromosome and people who have this condition, their muscles begin to deteriorate from a fairly young age and usually you have very, very bad mobility by the time you're a teenager and most people don't have a very long lifespan, unfortunately. Now, um, what um, he's been able to do is to collect from these dogs a certain kind of stem cell called a mesoangioblast, which is formed in the wall of a blood vessel. So it normally forms the muscle of the wall of a blood vessel. If he collected those stem cells from dogs that were healthy and injected them into dogs that were going to get muscular dystrophy. He had to give them some immunosuppressant drugs to stop the immune system attacking the foreign cells. But what they did was to move across the blood, blood vessel wall and get into the diseased muscle and repair them. And what they found was that these dogs, which were treated with these stem cells, were still alive a year later when all of their other littermates were actually beginning to develop quite serious signs of disease and were having to, in some cases, be put down. And these dogs remained well and healthy. So this is really encouraging that we can repair muscles in individuals that have Duchenne, the human form of muscular dystrophy. So maybe another very important implication of, of stem cell research. Um, now, a topic that's been very much in the news and in everyone's mind at the moment is climate change. And on a few, a few weeks ago on the show, we heard about frogs communicating to each other with ultrasound. But sadly, this week, I have much more gloomy news for frogs. And it seems that climate change is making European frogs very sick indeed. A team of herpetologists led by Jamie Bosch at the National Museum of Natural Science in Madrid has studied midwife toads living in Spain's Penalara Natural Park, where they used to thrive, but now they're virtually extinct. And the team was trying to understand what might have happened to the midwife toads, and they looked at records kept for the last 26 years and compared them to meteorological data covering the same period. And what they found was that rising air temperatures between 1976 and 2002 were very strongly linked to the impact of a deadly fungus on the toads. I'm going to try and get the name right. The chytrid fungus is called Batrachoca tri... I knew I'd get it wrong. Batrachotritium dendrobatatis. Doesn't really matter, sorry. It's a kind of fungus that interferes with the toad's ability to stop themselves from drying out, their kind of water regulation ability. Now, because of their thin, moist skins, frogs and toads are really susceptible to changes in global temperature. And it's thought that the increasingly warm and dry conditions may allow this fungus to survive over winter when previously it would have died out. Now, this is the first evidence we have for any European species being wiped out by a disease linked to climate change. Although the, the fungus is already known to be the culprit for amphibian declines in Australia and in South America. For example, since the 1980s, the disease has killed 74 out of 100 harlequin frog species in Central and South America alone, which is an incredible impact. It's not really obvious why these fungal diseases have spread so rapidly and so devastatingly around the world, and it could be something to do with the pet trade that's partly to blame. But the really bad news is that trying to save frogs and toads inside protected natural parks, nature parks like the one in Spain, is not going to be enough to ensure their survival in the face of climate change. So an example of why frogs are croaking it, I suppose you could say. Oh dear. But uh, another reason why people croak it is because of heart disease. It's actually one of the number one killers in the West and perhaps one person in three who 
is listening to this programme will probably succumb to heart disease. So how do we put the problem right? Well, people are very interested in stem cell technology, but it's all very well putting new cells into the heart if you can't give, get blood supply to them in order to nourish those cells you've put in and keep them alive. Well, Paul Riley from University College London has this week published a paper in the journal Nature where they've discovered a clever chemical which is called thymosin beta-4, which can trigger the heart to make new blood vessels. And what they've done is initially to start by studying how the heart develops in the first place, because if you can understand how the heart wires itself up and develops in an embryo, and you can study the factors that make the heart develop, then perhaps the same signals that are active there will be obeyed in the adult heart. And that's exactly what they found. When they injected this thymosin beta-4 substance into the heart, they found that it reorganised cells in the surface layer of the heart to start forming new blood vessels. So they think that perhaps in the future, when we come to people who've had heart disease, we might be able to inject some of this substance into the diseased region of the heart and it will mobilise these stem cells and early progenitor cells to start to grow new blood vessels that will then sustain the damaged area which will help to repair itself even better. The Naked Scientists Supported by the Wellcome Trust now time to cross the Atlantic and catch up with Bob and Chelsea for this week's science update in which they bring us news of much warmer climate in Antarctic and icebergs that can sing. This week for the Naked Scientists, science update goes polar. I'll talk about some singing Antarctic icebergs. But first, Chelsea takes us up near the North Pole where we find not Santa Claus, but something that to some scientists seems almost as unlikely. In the Arctic, plants and animals have to survive three months of total darkness in the winter. Today, very few species are up to that task. But 45 million years ago, during a period called the Eocene, vast forests thrived there. Earth scientist Hope Jaron of Johns Hopkins has found that they were home to conifers that grew to 100 feet tall and 10 feet wide thanks to an unusual ability. We believe that they went into a very dormant stage, uh, not unlike a deciduous tree such as the maples that you see today that are losing their leaves. However, these were conifer forests, and the conifer forests that we have today are evergreen all year round. So the idea of a conifer forest that shuts down and loses its leaves once a year is a very different kind of ecosystem than anything we have on Earth today. She adds that Earth was warmer in the Eocene, so studying its ecosystems could help scientists predict what might happen if today's Earth continues to warm. Thanks, Chelsea. restless moan is the song of an Antarctic iceberg sped up so that humans can hear it. Northwestern University seismologist Emil O'Call and his colleagues are studying these strange ultra-low frequency melodies with seismic microphones they've planted on the ice. O'Call says each iceberg resonates on a surprisingly specific note, which fluctuates over time. And this creates a kind of symphony, uh, like, you know, if you slightly adjust the length of a violin string, you're going to be able to slightly change the musical note that you play. It's not clear where the rumbling comes from. Ocal says it may be the sound of icebergs scraping together or the vibrations of water flowing through cracks like air through an organ pipe. He says figuring out what these songs are and understanding why an iceberg might change its tune could help scientists keep tabs on the shrinking polar ice. Thanks, Bob. We'll be back next week with more stories from the left side of the Atlantic. Until then, I'm Chelsea Wald. And I'm Bob Hershon for AAAS, the Science Society. Back to you, Naked Scientists. Thanks, guys. And remember, if you want to catch up with anything that they're doing across the other side of the Atlantic, then uh, have a look at their website. That's scienceupdate.com, I think. Is that right, Chris? Yes. And they'll be back more with more science shenanigans next week. 
Andy is on the A120. He's got a sort of frosty question for us. Hello, Andy. Hello, mate. Thank you for joining us on The Naked Scientist. What do you want to talk about? Um, listen, the young girl talked about frogs just now. It reminded me I wanted to ask you... I saw a documentary, sort of nature-type programme, young to go now, and it dealt with these people way, way up in the mountains above the snow line, during, obviously during the winter. But they had frogs up there that, during the winter, they literally freeze solid. And yet, come spring, they seem to defreeze and come back to life. And how do they do it? Mm. Well, obviously, if you put a human in the freezer, the first thing that would happen is that all of our tissues, which have a lot of water in them, in fact, 60 or 70% of the weight of a human being, and most mammals, actually, is water. And water, as you know, forms crystals of ice, and those crystals are often jagged and sharp. And this is the same reason why when you put a strawberry in the freezer and then get it out again, it doesn't resemble a strawberry anymore. It turns into a sort of mess. And the reason for that is that these sharp ice crystals that form in the cells destroy the cellular structure. They burst holes in the cells and make the tissue fall apart. What animals that can resist that have managed to do is to evolve a natural antifreeze. And the way antifreeze works is that it stops the crystals forming these big, jagged shapes. That's part of it. So they form much smaller crystals that have softer edges. And, in fact, there was a very elegant piece of research published about this time last year in the journal Science, and they were looking at the snow flea, which lives in Canada. And that particular animal makes a another form of antifreeze. And when you zoom in on the body of those animals, which can survive down to about minus 10 or something, you see that the tiny crystals of ice that form in their cells look almost like a grain of rice. They don't look all sharp and jagged. And because of that, the cells don't get damaged in the same way. So that's part of it. They don't form sharp crystals. Also, they can resist lower temperatures because they have these antifreezes, which mean that their blood doesn't actually turn solid until a much lower temperature than it would do normally. And so it works a bit like the antifreeze that you would put into your car. So that's part of the survival mechanism. The other part of the survival mechanism is that frogs and other amphibians are cold-blooded. So unlike us, where we have to stay warm or we die, those animals absorb a lot of energy from their environment and doing a little bit of exercise does put their temperature up a bit but they largely rely on absorbing energy from the environment and that determines their metabolic rate. So how metabolically active they are can go up or down enormously depending upon the temperature. So if you cool a frog down, it just slows down to a near standstill metabolically and doesn't do anything until you warm it up again and they're well adapted to being able to survive like that. Brilliant. Quick go at the quiz, Andy. Go on then. A third of all of the tuna in the world is eaten in Japan. Sorry, I should have said the word caught. A third of all the tuna caught in the world is eaten in Japan. Is that science fact or science fiction? I'd say science fiction. I'm afraid it's actually true. I'm sad to say that Japanese are some of the hungriest um, people for fish and a lot of it ends up as sushi. About 3,000 languages are spoken around the world, Andy. Fact or fiction? wrong again no it's 7,000 different languages are spoken around the world the most popular and spoken by the most people is Mandarin Chinese with over 800 million native speakers then English thank you very much and Spanish with over 300 million speakers Andy thank you very much you did very well zero out of two <laughs> but it was a very good question though I really enjoyed it thank you
Bye-bye. This is The Naked Scientist with Chris and Helen. We're taking any science question on anything to start with. If you have one for us, 08459 25 2000. Email chris at nakedscientist.com or text in on 07786 20 1960. Now, I've done a little bit of research this week, uh, partly talking to Proctor and Gamble, actually, because James in Bar Hill phoned in, Helen, a little while ago and said, um, this was a couple of weeks back, and said, uh, how do these washing up liquid sachets that dissolve when they touch water work? Because obviously they've got liquid inside them why don't, the, why don't they just turn into liquid totally? And then he found one that had actually broken down in the bag and it had dissolved itself, and uh, saying, why has that happened? Now, we suggested that there isn't much water in the washing-up liquid. It's largely very concentrated detergent, and that you make the packet out of something which does break down with water, and there's not enough water in the detergent to break the bag down. Uh, and we thought that was probably right, but we thought we'd better check, and, and Procter & Gamble did indeed say... The liquid tablets and capsules have very low water content, which is sufficiently low that the water-soluble pouch film remains intact until it comes into contact with the wash solution, and then it dissolves away completely. Excellent. Good stuff there. Well, we've already had lots of emails and text messages answering our question, which is the teaser for today, which is, when did the hole in the ozone layer first appear over Antarctica? So a couple of people are definitely along the right lines. Peter in Carbrook, thank you very much for your text message. Brenda in Bradwell, you're um, also doing very well. Joshua in Willingham, I think not quite right, but thanks anyway for your uh, your um, text message. That was great. Keep them coming in, though. Give us a call, 08459 25000, um, or a text message. Got an email here from Larry, who's in Canada. Uh, he says, I'm from Canada, but residing in the Czech Republic. And he's a big fan of yours, Helen. Says here, just a quick note to tell you what a lovely, darling bunch of people you all are. I just saw the pictures, and Helen, I think I'm in love. And as for you, Chris, well, Chris, I'm staunchly heterosexual, but a man like you could turn a guy's head. Now, that's oh, the kind of fan mail we like, isn't it? Thank you very much. <laughs> He then went on to say that he thinks the Naked Scientist's uh, podcast is the cat's buttocks, which is a new expression on me. Uh, I think I'll take that to mean it's good, not bad. But uh, you can get the Naked Scientist podcast, which is the sort of downloadable version of this program from our website, which is nakedscientist.com. So if you can't tune into the radio program one week, then you can always nip over to our website and, and grab the electronic digital version of the show and then you can listen to it at your leisure. Now, I wonder if that will count for the Oxford English Dictionary is the first recorded use of the phrase cat's buttocks. What do you think? Might have to go and have a look for that. I've got an email here uh, from Roger Holford saying, I am having an argument with a friend about whether or not body odour is a matter of fact or opinion. Can you recommend any relevant articles? Or any ideas? Articles. Any ideas? Well... Do you mean in the fact that does this person smell nice or does this person smell so bad I can't possibly sit next to them? I thought that wasn't really a matter of opinion. Well, the thing but... is that we have our body odour to thank for lots of things. One person we interviewed on this programme earlier this year was John Pickett from Rothamsted Research who has actually bottled odour human and specifically bottled those components coming off your skin that mosquitoes hate. So there are some people in the population that exude odours that mosquitoes really cannot stand. And... Some people carry those genes that enable them to make those chemicals. Others don't. And so by bottling those chemicals, you can turn it into the world's best insect repellent. That's what he's that done. So good, yeah. I think that in that respect, um, body odour is extremely useful. And, and not only mosquitoes, works against the Scottish biting midge as well. And so he, he, when he wrote his grant application, he put uh, top priorities to send this to Scotland. It's very, very useful. OK, great. And don't they, hasn't, haven't people done ex also um, experiments looking at um, how attractive we find the smell of other, like women, how attractive women find the smell of sweat from men? And 
that they get men to wear a shirt um, for a while and then they sniff them and uh, have shown, I think, that there's a you're actually more attracted to people with less that are less genetically similar to you than yourself. That's that definitely right? true in yeah. mice. It's very robust, those studies done in mice. We know that in mice, if, um, if, if, you, if possible, they will try to find a mouse partner who is as genetically different from themselves as possible. And if you put two mice together and, and they're brother and sister and you don't give them any choice, then the, the, the female will mate with the male and have pups with that with her brother. But if you then introduce a third mouse, which is genetically totally different for the first two mice, then the female can abort her babies and remate with the different male because mice have this very strong and well-developed sense of smell and we know that the smell receptors are on the same chromosome as the same as the structures that control how the immune system works. And so we think that mice can use smell as a surrogate marker of how your immune system is working, and so you can use that smell to guide you as to how different you are, as you were saying, genetically from someone, and therefore go for some for someone who is as genetically different to you as possible, which should make you healthier. Problem is, we humans tend to have very well-developed frontal lobes in our brain, which means we're very social, we, we think things through very carefully, and we're very, very likely to get the argument skewed by other things like social pressures and likes and dislikes and how big someone's wallet is. Sounds good. Well, thanks for your email, Roger, and uh, I hope that has helped a bit. But have a look around on the internet for smelly mice. I think that would be somewhere to start. Laying the facts bare, the Naked Scientists. It is the Naked Scientists with Chris and with Helen, and we're talking about the science of Antarctica this week. And one of the first people we're going to talk to from the University of Leeds is Jane Francis, and she's driven all the way here in horrible traffic. So thank you ever so much, Jane. It's a great pleasure to have you with us. But thank you. Pleasure. Now... Lots of people, when you say Antarctica, think very, very cold. But it wasn't always that way, was it? No, I mean, like you say, most people, when they think of Antarctica, they think of ice caps and uh, glaciers and very cold temperatures. But for most of Antarctica's history, when I'm talking about millions of years now in geological time, it was actually green and it was covered with lush, dense forests. And how and, warm was it? Well, well, the interesting thing is that um, if, even though... What, what is it, 90, more than 99% of Antarctica is covered in ice. The most common fossil that you probably you can find in Antarctica is fossil wood. And what we can do is use fossil plants that we find in the rocks, so fossil wood, leaves, um, even the flowers, fossil fossilised flowers, we can use those to reconstruct the vegetation and from there we can work out what the temperature was. So if we go back, say, let's go back 50 million years ago, it's probably, well, um, what we call subtropical to warm temperate, which means, you know, very nice indeed, thank you, warm summers and, and warm winters. And so certainly- not that grossly dissimilar to here. Uh, even warmer than here, actually. Much warmer than here, much more pleasant. And no signs of ice at all. So, so a very different world, very different world. And the point is that that was 50 million years ago. It's very different today. So what's changed to make such a profound shift in the way that things happen in Antarctica now? Well, the most interesting thing is that um, Antarctica actually has been over the South Pole for at least 100 million years. So when, when I say there are forests in Antarctica, people usually say to me, oh, well, does that mean the Antarctic continent was, was on the equator? And that's, that's not the case at all. And geologists have looked at the rocks and they've, they've found signals in the rocks to show us that Antarctica was over the South Pole. So that means the, the, the Earth's climate was much warmer in those days. Probably that's partly because we, it must be higher levels of carbon dioxide. So that's one reason why we look back into the past and and do these paleoclimate studies from the past because it really is a mirror image of what we might be be seeing in future with higher carbon dioxide levels. But also Antarctica was part of a a much bigger landmass in the the past called Gondwana and all the the southern hemisphere continents were amassed together and so there was this big landmass over the pole and 
so Antarctica wasn't sort of isolated in its icy tomb of water as it is now. So presumably, because there were all those land masses jammed together, the ocean circulations would have been quite different then, and that may have had an, impl- an impact on the temperatures. Yes, I mean, what we think happened is that um, the, the, the ocean currents that flowed around the equator were warmed up by the sort of warm equatorial temperatures, and then because of the um, position of the coastlines around Gondwana, those warm water masses were pushed all the way down to Antarctica so they could get rid of all this warm, moist air over the continent and keep, keep the continent warm. And then, and then those water currents went back up to the equator again and warmed up. Whereas today, you see, Antarctica is completely isolated. It's, it's South America, South Africa and um, Australia moved away millions of years ago. And now we have the circumantarctic current that flows around Antarctica. And that keeps it really cold. That water, that current never gets the chance to warm up. And so Antarctica is just frozen inside it. Doesn't the same thing happen in the air above Antarctica in the sense that you end up with this big sort of whirlpool going around in the air, which is why you end up with CFCs and things dumping there, which is why we ended up with an ozone hole? Yeah, it's a very sort of specific small um, uh, climate of its own above Antarctica. Yeah, it's just like a big... I always think of it as a big deep freeze. It has a big block of ice on it that's, what, up to three, four kilometres thick, and it's just sitting there. It's so big it has its own internal freezer in it. Now, the last vestige of the connection between those other big continents and the Antarctic continent, was, was that the corner of Australia where Tasmania is and that kind of thing? No, actually, that split away some 100 million years ago. The last connection, actually, was with South America. And that wasn't very long ago, geologically speaking. Probably, probably the deep water flowed between South America... For- between Patagonia and the Antarctic Peninsula, the bit that sticks up like a finger, about sort of 20 million years ago. And so before that, it was joined. So that's why when we find a lot of fossils, uh, fossils of plants and animals, we also find quite close relatives of them in South America today. And no doubt in the past, millions of years ago, they could quite easily walked all the way from South America into Antarctica. And if you go further back in time, when Gondwana existed, you could have a, a nice holiday walking all the way from the equator all the way through Antarctica and out, out to Australia, and you wouldn't have had to get your feet wet. So how deep would you now have to go through the ice to, to find the kinds of fossilised specimens that you've been looking at? Oh, well, it's really easy, actually. I just pick them up off the surface because, um, like I said, most of it is covered in ice and people usually think I have to look in ice cores, but that, that's not the case. Um, there are small bits of rock just sticking up as nunataks, as mountains tops that stick above the ice sheet, or some of the islands have cliffs that are exposed, so the rock's exposed, and the fossils are just lying there waiting for me to come along and pick them up. Now... When somewhere gets isolated like that for a considerable period, the, the wildlife that evolves tend to be pretty specialised, doesn't it? So do those fossils give you any sort of revelations as to some pretty funky animals that would have been living there at that time? Ah, oh, well, the, the, the history of Antarctica is really interesting because the fossil history is quite different from the, the, the animals and plants that live there now. And so, for example, in the forest, the plants we have in the forest, we have a lot of tropical plants that are mixed with uh, plants that grow today, say, in Tasmania. So we get some real tropical lianas, tropical vines, and, and, and some really big bushy plants. In terms of animals, yeah, we have, um, well... An- dinosaurs of course in the past we've got dinosaur bones from antarctica and we also have some um, primitive mammals some of the colleagues of mine in argentina finding primitive mammals like sloths and little rat-like animals there and then of course penguins but uh, the penguins fossils that we find actually the really interesting thing is we find the penguin bones in the same beds of rock as we find all our subtropical plant fossils so penguins that first lived in, in Antarctica certainly didn't live on the ice, as you can imagine them today. They lived in 
or in the seas around the edges of these forests. So they didn't evolve to live in icy conditions at all. They, they evolved to live in much warmer environments. They certainly did, yeah. So how the hell have they coped with that sudden and dramatic shift in how they actually go about their life? Because how would they have foraged? What would they have eaten? Or, or would they have had pretty much the same foraging lifestyle? It would have just been that they would have done it in the warmer water. Well, I'm not sure how they lived. I mean, what we know from the penguin fossils that we find in Antarctica is that well, there's one very famous one, penguin fossil, or quite a few fossils of a type of penguin that had toe bones. That When we construct the penguin that had these large toe bones was at least six foot high. So can you just imagine that, a six foot high penguin wandering around in the warm waters of tropical Antarctica? And the fact that, that it was six feet high, is that, is that a, a reflection on the fact that it was a lot warmer? Because have penguins shrunk down to, to minimise their heat losses now because it's so cold? Is that what's forced them to be smaller? I have no idea because I'm not a penguin expert, but I don't think so. I mean, if you look at an emperor penguin today, I met some emperor penguins a few years ago, and I'm not a very tall person, but they came up to, um, to, came up to above my waist, and they've got long, big, curved beaks, so <laughs> they look pretty formidable. As someone no. said to me the other day, Jane, um, that's a lot of chocolate, isn't it? <laughs> It sure is. Six foot yeah. high penguin. That's Jane Francis from the University of Leeds. If you'd like to ask her any questions, phone in now on 08459 25 2000, email chris at nakedscientist.com or text in on 07786 20 1960. And another reason to call in is to have a go at our teaser. So the question is, what year did the hole over the ozone, in the ozone layer first appear over Antarctica, the place we're talking about today? Give us, your, um, give us your ideas on when that happened. As you say, phone us, text us, give us an email. That would be great. Now, with all this talk of freezing over the Antarctic, it's about time we did a bit of warming up. So now we're going to go off to Southfield School for Girls, which is in Kettering, where Derek and Dave are with Amy and Laura to find out how ham warmers work. Hi, Derek. Hello there, welcome to Southfield School for Girls and we've come here this week to do a particular science experiment which will explain something that you may have heard of and may even have used. Dave, what is it we're going to be doing tonight? We're going to be investigating hand warmers. Okay, hand warmers, there you go. So these are the things that you're out, out on a walk maybe, it's pretty chilly and you can get them out and get your hands warm with them. So there you go. We've also got two volunteers here from Southfield School for Girls who are going to help us do the experiment. Could you guys tell me your names and uh, what years you're in please? Hi, I'm Amy Loke and I'm in Year 12. I'm Laura and I'm in Year 12. Excellent. OK, guys, and we're here to do a bit of science, probably a bit of chemistry science, something like that. But do you guys like science? What about you, Amy? Uh, yeah, I think it's really interesting. OK, any reason, anything you like particularly? No, it just makes me sound clever. Oy, OK, fair enough. <laughs> we're going to make you sound very clever, if you get all of our questions right, of course. And Laura, what do you like about science, if anything? Because I'm blonde and everyone thinks I'm stupid, it's an excuse to make sure that they know I'm not. All right, there you go. So what we've got here in front of us is a hand warmer. Um, I'm just going to describe what it looks like. It's basically like a circular pouch of a gel-like liquid in there. It's, it's got a little metal disc in there as well, OK? And, um, what, well, Dave, why don't you instruct Aim and Laura what to do? You've probably seen these before. They're the reusable hand warmers. The single-use ones aren't the same. What you've got to do is take the little... Um, the disc is like a dome shape and you've got to invert the dome. Hopefully it should do something interesting. OK, now, Amy, have you used one of these things before? Yeah. OK, is this on walking or something? Uh, in school when it's freezing in winter. Oh, oh, dear, not very good heating here. All right, well, never mind. OK, so here you go. You're, you've got that little disc. You've got to kind of turn it inside out on itself sort of thing. Oh, oh it's it mended it. OK, tell us what you're seeing. Um, well, it's getting really hot and it's like a cloud growing across the disc. OK, so really we're not seeing liquid here anymore. This is the thing. It's actually all gone... Hard, like little crystals. Yeah, what, what are we seeing, Laura? It's white and hard. <laughs> okay. Fair enough, yeah. And, and also, yeah, is, is it, it's warming up then, is it? 
Yeah, it's hot. So there you go, that's the hand warmer, and we've actually made it work there, and this solidness of it just spread out across the whole liquid which was inside there. So what we're going to do is try and explain how that works, and Dave's actually set some stuff up for us to do that. So Dave, what have we got here? What have we actually prepared? I've made some rather less practical versions of that. I've got some beakers and some water in them, and in that I've dissolved some of the substance here. It's a white powder. It's called sodium acetate. It's what you get if you react vinegar with sodium bicarbonate. Okay, and does sodium acetate actually turn up in anything we might know? It's actually some of the flavouring in salt and vinegar crisps because the sodium is from salt and the acetate is from vinegar, so it tastes kind of salt and vinegary. Okay, but we have a seriously large amount of the stuff here in that um, jar there, and and you've dissolved a large amount of it in water then? It's incredibly soluble in water. And I've warmed it up, boiled it, till it all dissolve, and I've let it cool down slowly. And I've got it in several beakers here, and I've been covering it to make sure it's cooled down very gently. So Dave's got four beakers here, and uh, he's covered them with cling film so that they can cool down very, very slowly. And inside each is the liquid, which is a little bit cloudy, but pretty much clear. And uh, we are about to do something with it, so what what should we do? Well, Laura, if you'd like to get just a little tiny crystal from the powder and just drop it into the liquid, the tiniest amount. Okay. and while Laura does that, Amy, could you tell us what happens? Oh, it's all going cloudy again. Okay, and how, how is it spreading? Like, what, what's happening? It's forming crystals which are spreading across the glass and it's getting really hot. Okay, and I mean, how long did that take? About five seconds. Yeah, so, so this crystalline structure, it kind of spread right across where the liquid was. And now, I mean, it was liquid, but you're moving that beaker around and you could pretty much turn it upside down, couldn't you? And, and you're touching it. What can you feel? My, my finger's hot, <laughs> and it's quite solid. And it's very solid. So. My finger's hot. All right, well, we don't want you burning yourselves. I mean, is, is this thing actually a more concentrated version of what we've seen in the hand warmer? Quite possibly, yes. I don't know the exact concentration in the hand warmer, I'm afraid. OK, but we like to make sure things work, so we just whack a load of it in there. OK, then. So, so we've seen this thing just turn completely crystalline. It's absolutely solid, and it's hot. question is, what's going on there? Why, firstly, has it turned into a crystal? Well, first of all, um, things are more soluble when they're hot than when they're cold. So we've put, so when we heat it up boiling and we dissolve as much of the stuff as possible, when you cool it down, it should be less soluble at lower temperatures. So it wants to for- crystallise out again. But it's actually quite difficult to start forming a crystal. It takes quite a lot of energy. So without one to start it, it will just sit there, even at quite low temperatures, and stay a liquid. But if you add a little crystal from the pot to it, there's somewhere for the crystal to start forming. And all of a sudden, everything will crystallise at once. And in crystallising, it releases some of the energy you put in by boiling it. And so it gets warm. So since this thing is so close to kind of being able to form a crystal, all it needs is one tiny crystal to actually go through that reaction. I mean, can anything else do that? Can, can you know, another little particle trigger it? Um, it would have to be a particle with a similar sort of structure to the solid sodium acetate, but other things probably can. If you, if you used a very dirty beaker, it would probably do of its own accord. OK, then. Now, you mentioned, of course, it getting hot as well. Can you just explain a bit more, like, what exactly is going on there? Well, the sodium acetate would rather be a crystal than be dissolved. And when it clicks together, it's a bit like magnets sticking into the structure. And that releases energy. And that energy is released as heat. So it warms everything up. So there you go. So that's what's happening when it forms a crystal and then it gives out loads of heat. Meanwhile, um, Amy's still touching the, the beaker. Uh, is it still warm? Yeah, it's keeping my hands warm. Oh, yeah, that's very good. OK, so Laura, I mean, what did you think of our experiment? Does that kind of explain to you how these hand warmers work? Yeah, it does. It makes sense now. 
Okay, good stuff. Well, I hope that will be useful to you. And maybe um, if it is another cold day, you won't have to go out and buy a hand warmer. You can just go and make this stuff. Although I gather sodium acetate is not really widely available, is it? You, you'd have to get a lot out of salt and vinegar crisps. You'd need to get through a lot of crisps, yeah. yeah okay, fair enough. And, and not have any flavour either. So there you go. All right. Well, thanks any, very much to Amy and Laura from Southfield School for Girls and to Dave as well, setting up the experiment. And uh, it's all from us. So until next time, it's goodbye. Thank you very much to Derek, to Dave. Amy and Laura. Now next week if you want to do a bit of kitchen science experimentation you're going to have to get hold of a ping pong ball a hairdryer and a very long tube because we're going to be showing you all about the science of aerodynamics. The Naked Scientist Podcast brought to you by thenakedscientist.com Coming up shortly, Paul Abrahamson from the British Antarctic Survey, uh, Mike Fedak also waiting in the wings and they're going to talk about what's under the ice in the Antarctica. But before then, David Spence has emailed in, Jane. Uh, and she, he wants to know, uh, he says, Hi Chris and team, that man from up yonder in Shetland, he's listening on the internet, and he says, Since the Antarctic is landlocked, is it believed that underneath the ice, but above the land, in other words, sandwiched between the two, there's an ocean of water? Where does it come from? Well, that's really interesting, because, you know, one of the most exciting projects that people are involved with in, on Antarctica uh, at the moment is looking for what's called subglacial lakes. And they're using uh, radar waves from the surface, from planes and from the surface of the ice to look down, and they think what they found is a whole series of lakes that are sitting above the rock but below the ice and of course the really exciting thing is are there ancient life forms in there and are they re- unique and so that's what everybody's hoping to find in the near future and the other part of david's question was what's melting the ice is it is it energy coming from or heat coming from within the earth that's making the ice melt Around the edges, it's it's possibly um, global warming and warm seas. No, no, the actual oh, the, water the that you've got sealed within the ice in those subglacial lakes, is that energy coming from the crust oh. of the earth that's making the ice melt, is what that, he's asking. That's a very good question. That's what we all want to know. There, it, is possi- it is possible that it's, it is the, what we call geothermal heat from the rocks underneath causing the bottom of the ice sheet to melt. It may be water that's been trapped there for millions of years, and that's what everybody is hoping for. Thanks, Jane. Excellent. So we've been hearing all about how... Um, the Antarctic works and what's going on down there. But the one thing we need to think about as well is how do we find all this information out? What do the researchers actually do when they're living down there and working in the Antarctic? And we have now on the line Kate Hendry from the University of Oxford, who's going to tell us a little bit about um, what it's like to be down there. Hi, Kate. Hi, Helen. Hi. Now, is it just the problem of the fact that it's very, very cold in Antarctica that makes possibly research quite hard down there? Or there, are there other things as well that we need to think about? Well, I mean, certainly the cold is one of the important problems. Um uh, just uh, trying to keep warm when you're out in the field. Uh, is it really that cold? Well, um, at the moment, it's, uh, it's summer in Antarctica, of course, so it's not actually that cold. Um, where I work at Rothera Research Station, it's uh, usually average between about minus 5 and plus 5 degrees centigrade. Oh, so quite warm then. <laughs> but um, if you're out in the winter, of course, you can get to minus 30 or minus 40 and even worse with the wind chill. So, yes, it's certainly very important then. So I guess you have to have... We've got a lot of modern gear and technology to keep ourselves warm, so that's not bad. Do you ever use hand warmers like we described in, in kitchen science? Unfortunately, no. I, I was listening to that thinking that sounds a wonderful idea. I might have to try and find some of those. Apparently people even take them diving, which sounds great to me. <laughs> um, so, so, yes, it's very cold. Are there, what other things are, are problematic about being down in Antarctica? Well, one of the main things is the isolation, really. I mean, you're a long way away from anywhere else, so you can't just pop down the shops to pick up spare supplies or anything. Um, and uh, so I guess that's a big problem. As well. So psychologically, do you tend to do people tend to get quite uh, quite loopy down there? <laughs> <laughs> oh, not at all. It's quite a good community spirit. I mean, the the base is very uh, self sufficient. There are people there who who uh, are the electricians and plumbers and chefs and 
everyone kind of looks after each other. So there's a whole team of people kind of keeping you alive and getting the research done down there. That sounds um, sounds like you have a, have a good a good support system. But so I suppose you have to plan very carefully because everything has to be brought in, and I assume everything has to be taken out as well. Are there very tight environmental regulations? Because we we hear sometimes stories about how. Um, uh, tourism has to be regulated quite carefully, not to cause any more damage in Antarctica than, than we can possibly do. Is research very tightly kind of coordinated and controlled as well? Oh, very much so, yes. The British Antarctic Survey are really careful about um, making sure all the waste is taken out. So we recycle everything we can, everything separated on base and uh, shipped out at the end of the season. So, uh, so you take everything back? You don't leave anything behind? No, nothing at all. Excellent. Well, that sounds great. Um, um, and you enjoy working down there, I guess. One final question, I suppose. You must, uh, it's, to me, it sounds like a very cold, barren place to be. But um, you always, uh, um, I'll admit now, Kate's my sister, so I know all about this anyway. But she comes back just bubbling about the Antarctica. And is it, what is it about the place that's so, so addictive, do you think? Oh, it's very difficult to describe. But I suppose it's, the, uh, it's living in, the, in most, one of the most beautiful places on, on the planet, really. I mean, it's a pristine wilderness. Um, I'm sharing my, my uh, living space with penguins and seals and whales and, um, you know, spare time I can go off skiing in, in the mountains. So it's a, it's a pretty, pretty cool place to live. Sounds fantastic. Well, thanks so much, Kate, for giving us a little glimpse into what life in Antarctica is life. And good luck with the rest of your research. It is The Naked Scientist with Chris and Helen, and we're talking about the science of Antarctica this week. We want to ask you a very topical Antarctica-type question. That's a little clue to the answer to this week's teaser, which is what year was the ozone hole over Antarctica first detected? I've got a few um, people along the right lines. Thanks for uh, your for, um, email. I think Martin Jolly in Chatteris is maybe need to be a bit more specific there. He's given us a decade in which it happened. I think we'd like something a bit more targeted than that. Um, Mark in Bletchley, mm, a little bit too early, I'm afraid. Ruida in, from Malden in Essex, you're around about on the right line. So keep your phone calls coming in 08459 25 Text us on 07786 2019 60 or get on those, that internet and give us an email, chris at com. Up for grabs is a copy of my new book, which is Naked Science. I'm going to donate it. Lots of fun and funky science facts and stories, which are all in the sort of spirit of the Naked Scientist, and I'll sign it for you. So even if you don't keep it for yourself, you can give it to someone for Christmas or you could flog it on eBay and it'd be worth three times what it is uh, on the cover. It is the Naked Scientist, and uh, one of our next guests is from the British Antarctic Survey, and that's Paul Abrahamson, and he's going to take us under the ice. Hi, Paul. Hi. Welcome to the Naked Scientist. So how are you exploring what's going on under the surface around Antarctica? Well, the uh, areas beneath the uh, Antarctic ice shelves, um, the ice shelves can be hundreds of metres thick um, floating glaciers, and they're some of the hardest areas to actually access. So um, a recent approach has been using... Um, robot submarines, AUVs, or, uh, autonomous underwater vehicles, to go um, down beneath the ice shelves and explore there. And what's down there? Well, it's um, water, seawater. <laughs> I guess uh, I asked for that one, didn't I? <laughs> it's extremely cold, um, and what we see is um, we're trying to trace what kind of water actually flows beneath there. Is it uh, melting the uh, the ice shelves from below and... Um, the, uh, the only ways to really get answers to that question are uh, either to drill in from above or to send submarines or other uh, instruments in from the, um, from the ice shelf front. So what are you actually seeing when you're down there? What have you discovered so far? What have been the findings? Well, some of the most interesting findings were that um, we have an upward-looking uh, um, sonar that um, will actually give us a profile of what the, uh, the base of the ice looks like. 
And we've always assumed that uh, this was completely smooth um, because the surface is essentially uh, smooth. But it turns out that they're actually extremely rough areas at the base of the ice shelves. And, and wh- why is that so critical? Well, it uh, is critical because if we have a rougher area, then um, we get more um, turbulence at the base of the ice shelf. We can have more heat exchange um, occurring here. Oh, like, like heat sinks almost, like fins on a heat sink. Yes, almost. You can get more... Um, so what, that more speeds melting. up melting, does it? Yes, that would, uh, that would, um, that would speed up melting. Is it a symptom of melting, though? Does that mean that the problem is becoming more acute? Well, we don't exactly know what is uh, causing these areas. Um, We can see that they seem to correspond to some surface features called flow stripes on the uh, surface of the the ice shelves. But we're not exactly um, sure what their significance is or how they were uh, created or how they're maintained. How do you actually control a submarine down underwater? Because one thing that you can't do is is like have a radio-controlled boat. You can't do radio waves, can you? So how do you tell your submarine where to go and what to look at, and, and how do you get it back? Well, it, um, you tell it uh, where to go in advance, so all of that's programmed in. It will uh, try to then follow uh, these instructions. If it does encounter any obstacles, it will try to get around them on the way, um, and um, we can track where it is while it's out there, and then it's supposed to come back out to the ship, or uh, if there's uh, any problem, then the ship can tell it to um, can use a homing beacon to get it to return to the ship. And how deep is it going down? The uh, deepest we sent it down beneath the ice shelf was about 800 uh, metres, um, but the deepest it can go is 1,500. But there's a new version on the drawing board now that goes down to 6,000 metres. So that's an awfully long way, isn't it? So how long do these things go off on their own for? Do you wave goodbye for it for days at a time, or is it just a few hours? I think the uh, longest uh, mission it's ever been off on was about 30 hours. And you're really crossing your fingers it's going to come back at the end. Yes. <laughs> Excellent. Paul, have you ever lost one of these things? Because it presumably must cost quite a few million. Uh, has one ever gone AWOL? Well, uh, yes, unfortunately that has <laughs> Who's happened. Who's the insurance uh, company? It's actually uh, not insured. <laughs> it's not. Now, there's a confession. <laughs> yes. Uh, well, it was. Uh, I think it was determined at the start of the project the cost of insuring it would be about the same amount as building a new one. So it wasn't so, uh, deemed worth it. So how many yeah. have you lost then? There has only been one that was lost. It's a once-in-a-lifetime experience yes, for the person who it, lost it, was it? Yes. <laughs> they, uh, went, they went shortly afterwards. Well, there was a rather <laughs> gloomy uh, atmosphere on board afterwards. Sure. That's Paul Abrahamson from the British Antarctic Survey. If you'd like to ask him or Jane, who's also here in the studio, any questions, and in a second we'll also be talking to Mike Fedak from the University of St Andrews, uh, and he works on systems that you can put onto animals. So where Paul is using subs to go under the ice, Mike Fedak is using seals. Not uh, any member of the US Navy. These are the real live mammals that live in the Antarctic and he's applying these uh, sort of detecting bodies onto their heads. They swim under the ice and then they send back messages via satellites to tell scientists what they're seeing and what they're finding underneath the surface. Fancy listening to the naked scientists in your bed, (laughs) on your way to work, or even at work. Mm -hmm. Why not subscribe to our podcast? For more information, visit nakedscientist.com forward slash podcast. So I've got a, quite an interesting question here for us, Helen, which is on the subject of things going cold. It's an email who's sent in by Steve, and he says, um, I've been catching up on your show via the podcast archive. I live here in New Zealand, but I wonder if you could answer this question for me. Uh, why is it that sometimes when I put my beer, 330 mil glass bottle, in the deep freeze to rapidly chill it, then when I take it out, it's still liquid? I'm not ready to open it. I put it on the, part on the side. I come back a minute later, and it's gone icy. Surely it should start to warm up the minute I take it from the freezer. It shouldn't get any colder. Why should it turn to ice? 
Do you mean ice on the outside or ice in the, inside the can? No, the liquid goes icy. The, the, oh, my the goodness. Bottle of, uh, I really have no icy. idea about that. I reckon it's down to something similar to our kitchen science we did this evening. Oh. Because that was all about uh, nucleation, wasn't it? What you need is one tiny yeah. crystal to kickstart the process. So where's and where's this ice crystal coming it. from? Well, bubble when you... say, say he puts the glass bottle of this stuff in the freezer and the glass, where it's not in contact with the liquid, gets that little tiny bit colder because the liquid's not taking away the heat. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. And, so there's a little uh, space, so, little gap in the bottle. Where so there's the no glass liquid. on mm-hmm. one side of the bottle is at a much cooler temperature than the rest of the bottle containing the liquid. Okay. Then when you take the bottle out because you've had it in the freezer on its side, turn it the right way up. Suddenly, lots of lots and lots of beer gets in contact with the side of the bottle that's much colder. It might be enough to kickstart a small crystal forming, which then nucleates it. It, it makes it a lot more energetically favourable for lots of other ice crystals to be into form, and the beer goes slushy. All right, I'll that's, go with that. That's my theory. I believe that. That's a good guess anyway. From the University of St Andrews, we have Mike Fedak. Hello, Mike. Oh, good evening. Thank you for joining us on The Naked Scientist. Now, tell us how you're exploring the Antarctic. Um, we're taking advantage of some real expert Antarctic explorers, namely elephant seals, to, to help us sort of uh, examine the oceanography that they're dealing with. And since they sort of wander around the entire uh, polar ocean, um, they're excellent sort of uh, candidates for, for, for that kind of a job. I suppose one benefit of doing this, Mike, is that obviously if we send a ship or one of Paul's subs uh, down there, then there's always a risk that we may change the environment we're trying to explore and therefore we won't get a real picture of what's really there. Whereas if you use a part of nature itself, a, a seal, an animal, then you might stand a chance of getting a better view. Well, I, I think, yeah, I'm, I'm less concerned about the, the ships or something making a sort of a disturbance that affects their measurements. They're quite careful about that. And I think it's more a case of these animals going places where ships are unlikely to be able to go and spending time out there, much greater periods of time than a ship could ever do. It wouldn't be economically feasible to do it. And they can visit bits of the Antarctic that just would not be visited otherwise and get data from those places and there, thereby help you know, the other oceanographic uh, observation techniques to uh, be more successful. So technically speaking, Mike, how are you actually doing this? Well, we, we, we're attaching instruments to the fur of these elephant seals. We glue them on with a fast-setting epoxy, and these instruments basically give us a good idea of where the animal is. They describe uh, the animal's behavior by looking at the animal's depth, but they also do basic oceanographic measurements. Uh, they get salinity and temperature measurements and pr- provide these profiles, just in a way you might do from a ship, but as I said, from places where ships are not likely, not likely to go. So how deep can a seal go? Elephant seals are amazing divers. They get down to about 2,000 metres in the extreme, which is sort of an unthinkable kind of depth. I mean, it's a depth so great. If you can imagine, if you were to open a scuba tank magically at that depth, water would rush in rather than the air bubble out. I mean, it's 200 atmospheres of pressure. So amazingly deep divers. And they also dive all the time. They, they're almost never at the surface. So they're great, uh, really ocean ocean explorers and and these actual units that you apply with the glue onto the seal's fur how big are they and, and do they disable the animal in any way they're a bit no they don't they don't harm the animal at all i mean we're able to 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 use animals over several years in a running so we can see how well the animals are doing they're, they're behaving in every way normally and getting just as fat as they ought to get so it, it doesn't seem to bother them in a way at least that they can't make up for and uh they're, in comparison to an elephant seal, they're really not that big. They're about the size of your fist, I guess. They weigh about 450 grams, 400 grams. And how do you get the data back from the animals to find out where they've been and what they've been doing? Well, the, the, the devices have a little computer on board, which allow them to do all the sampling, and then they package that information up into nice little compact 
radio messages that they send up to a satellite, and the satellite then relays it down to us, and we can then decode the information and turn it into the data that we need. And what have you found so far by doing this? Have there been any things that really jumped out and you thought, gosh, that's surprising, we, wouldn't, we would never have thought that? Well, there, I think there's a, in, in a couple of different areas. I mean, we started this from the point of view of trying to understand what it is that elephant seals needed from the ocean, not really to do the oceanographic exploration for the sake of oceanographers, but really to learn for the sake of the animals which bits of the ocean were important to them. And we've identified the kind of places they require. We now know that they're quite diverse in the sense there's some three basic strategies they use. Some are real deep ice explorers that go way down to the Antarctic continent and sort of visit the, the benthos down on the continental shelf around the Antarctic margin, well into the ice. And another group, effectively, uh, effectively are, are, are animals that explore the frontal zones that, uh, that are at slightly lower latitudes, up around 50 degrees, 45, uh, 50 degrees, 45 degrees north or so, and look at areas anywhere from the uh, polar front down to the southern Antarctic front and uh, explore sort of a, a much more uh, pelagic kind of part of the ocean. Mike, um, thank you very much. We're going to have to leave it there because we're out of time, but okay. thank you for joining us and telling us about your work. Okay, thanks. That's Mike Fedak, who's a researcher at the University of St Andrews in Scotland. Right, we're nearly at the end of the show, so thank you to everyone who's called in to answer our teaser. Lots of very cl- close answers, but a couple of you got it just right. The winner is Eddie, listening in the Costa del Sol. Thank you very much. The ozone layer is celebrating its 20-year anniversary this year. It was first sighted in 1986. It was in August, so we've just gone past there the 20th go. anniversary. And actually, the good news is it's now beginning, we think, to stop growing and may even be shrinking, which is really good news. I'd like to say a massive thank you to everyone who's helped us with this show today. Jane Francis came all the way from Leeds to talk about her work. Thank you so much, Jane. It's been a huge pleasure having you on the programme. Paul uh, Abramson came from the British Antarctic Survey to talk about Autosub, and you just heard Mike Fedak there, who was talking to us about how they're gluing things on seals to find out where they go and what they get up to out in the wild. Now, next week, we're going to be finding out how to repair the nervous system, the spinal frontier, if you like. We'll be talking to Jeff Raceman from University College London, who is uh, engineering new ways using stem cells to repair the damaged spinal cord. See you next week. Thank you.